One of the most common hashtags of social media is hashtag no filter. If you're not aware, it's a, it's a kind of a label that Instagrammers put on photos that have been untouched by Photoshop or all sorts of other filters. It might be a beautiful photo that's a beautiful sunset that is actually that colour, really. Or a beautiful landscape that really is that green or blue or orange with no retouching. Sometimes people also use the hashtag no makeup. What you see is as close to real as it possibly gets. And sometimes it causes such a stir that some of the reputable quality journalistic publications will even put it on the front page. Wow, a celebrity with no makeup. Amazing. But it's hardly something new because Oliver Cromwell in 1653 asked that his official portrait be painted warts and all. Apparently he said something like, I desire that you would use all your skill to paint your picture truly like me. But all these, but remark all these roughness, pimples, warts and everything just as you see me. Otherwise I will never pay a farthing for it. Hashtag no filter. The reason I mention this is because the history of God's people in the Bible is very much hashtag no filter. The Bible is embarrassingly real and honest, full of incriminating evidence, lots of stories that make the heroes look stupid. But this brutal honesty gives the Bible an authenticity. The, the stupidity and the, the stuff-ups are all listed with no makeup, no filter. And it helps us recognise the truthfulness of all the history that's been recorded for us. But not only does it help us see that the text is authentic, it also shows us the genuineness of the Lord our God. And that's because, because the Bible feels real, it shows us that God is real. And that means that because the Bible is real, it is going to be brutally honest with the state of humanity and of sin. And that's going to mean that we'll see human depravity and destruction that is vivid and lifelike. And that's what we saw last week in chapters 15 and 16 of 1 Kings. It was heavy going. Eight bad and evil kings and an horrific, or actually more than one, mass murder of entire families. It was human sin at its absolute worst. No filter, no makeup. And if you were with us last week and you sat through the whole sermon, you would have seen why these chapters often get skipped by preachers. Why would any preacher subject the congregation to a sermon full of idolatry and pagan worship and mass murder? But the reason that we looked at it last week is because we wanted to have a good look at those 70 years of the kingdom of God with no filter and no makeup. It was a warts and all picture of just how bad things had gotten, how far things had fallen from the greatness and the glory of King David and Solomon. And it showed above all just how badly God's people need God to intervene, to do something, to break the ice, a circuit breaker. Something's necessary because the place is an absolute mess. And that is what last week has prepared us for today. 
It's not until you see the bad, bad bits that you actually see how seriously in need of salvation they were. And with that, today we meet Elijah. Elijah, who is a hero of the Old Testament. In fact, he's such a hero that when it comes to the New Testament, some people think that Jesus is Elijah. You know, who do you say that? Well, some say Elijah, some say some of the prophets, one of the prophets. And in fact, when Jesus has his transfiguration and he goes up the mountain, who does he see? Moses, and he sees Elijah, kind of the big three. And Elijah's one of them. Elijah is a very, very important person in the history of God's people. And today we're going to meet him and we're going to see some significant and miraculous events. And after the the horrible history of all of these dark and despairing times, we get a vision of God's glory and we get a vision of God's power. But it's not before more hardship and pain. And it starts with verse 1 of chapter 17. We read that Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab something. We'll get to that in just a moment. But before we go there, it's worth knowing that Elijah's name in the original language of Hebrew means my God is Yahweh or Yahweh is the word for the Lord and it's as though his own name is kind of like a, a Jesus is t-shirt you know he turned up to fir- turned up to school on the first day and they said what's your name so well good day my name is Jesus is Lord you'd certainly think that it'd start some conversations pretty quickly thanks mum thanks dad and so Elijah whose God is Yahweh, that's what his name is, he goes and visits King Ahab. Now, who's King Ahab? Ah, he's the last guy we looked at last time. He is the guy who is married to Jezebel. He's the daughter of the king of Sidon who worshipped Baal. Uh, He's a bad guy. Have a look at how he's described at the end of chapter 16. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. And so we've now got Elijah the prophet, whose God is very much Yahweh, meeting with King Ahab, whose God is very much Baal. We've got two guys representing two gods. How's it going to go? Well, what is it that Elijah says to King Ahab? Well, let's look at the rest of that verse. As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve... There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. With one sentence, the Lord's prophet tells the king that a long drought has just begun. Elijah tells Ahab that a punishing drought has begun. Where did it come from? El Nino? No. came from Yahweh. Elijah says that it's come from the true and living God, the Lord, Yahweh. And it won't stop until Elijah says so. One sentence is all that's necessary for Elijah to sentence Israel to a long and deep drought. Now, we know what drought's like, don't we? Remember two years ago when it was so dry in Jamboree that we needed to get trucks to deliver bales of feed to our normally lush valley? Jamboree of all places. Remember how dry the land was, the brown grass, and the way that it fueled the worst fire season in living memory. Now, we know drought in Australia. That's one of our things. 
but especially for those of us who make our living off the land, those who have to sell or, or even cull the livestock when there's no rain or grain. In typical Aussie fashion, what do we do? We kick the soil, we shrug our shoulders and we blame fate. But imagine if someone did a live video and they declared that as surely as Jesus lives, there will be no rain for the next few years until I say so. It would go viral. And people would say, what an idiot. What a crackpot. Who does this guy think he is? And they'd laugh. And they'd laugh. And then when there's no rain for a couple of weeks or maybe a month, they'd perhaps laugh a little bit less. And then after months and months and months of not even no rain, but not even any dew, they would have been hunting down this guy and saying, well, we thought you were a joke, but actually it seems that what you said was true. And I think that his life would be at risk. Same was true also in Israel 3,000 years ago. And so the Lord says to Elijah, run away. He says, go to the east and hide by Kereth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Elijah has dropped this drought bombshell, and the Lord says, now you've got to go away, you've got to run away, and you've got to hide. And what does he do as he hides? Well, the Lord says, I am going to care for you. I'm going to give you the water and the food you need. Verse 4, he says, drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you. For I have commanded them to bring you food. That's pretty cool, isn't it? The Lord God himself commanded even the birds to bring food to Elijah because he's in hiding. And water's not going to be a problem because he's right there at the Jordan River, which flows constantly. So Elijah does what he's told by the Lord. If only the disobedient kings might have done what they were told by the Lord, but no. But Elijah did, and so we read in verse 5 and 6 that he did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kereth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Every morning and every night, home delivery. The creator controls creation so that he can supply the needs of his prophet. And he could just keep eating and drinking and eating and drinking and eating and drinking to his heart's content Except, verse 7, after a while the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. That's true. It turns out that the drought has affected Elijah as well. There should be no surprise there, really. And you can imagine how bad that drought must have been for everyone. Not only would there have been a serious lack of water, there would have been a famine as well. The message that Elijah brought to King Ahab was coming true in a terrifying way. See, Ahab, he could have chosen to repent by now. He could have said, oh dear, I realise I should have turned it back to the Lord. I should be following the Lord. Because he's the guy who's the king of the universe and he's the one who's put me here in this spot as king. I'm really sorry, I'd like to turn back. And if he had have done that, then the, the drought would have stopped. In fact, you might have remembered this, but way back in when we were reading from chapter 8 of 1 Kings, Solomon said a little bit of stuff to God about drought. I'll put it up again on the screen, verse 35 of chapter 8. 
Solomon says to the Lord, if the skies are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and if they pray towards this temple and acknowledge your name and turn from their sins because you've punished them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them to follow the right path and send rain on your land that you have given to your people as their special possession. That's what King Solomon prayed to the Lord. And it's exactly what King Ahab also could have done. Turn from your sins, king, and the rain will come. But Ahab didn't. So the water's dried up. What's the Lord going to do to Elijah? Is he going to let Elijah drown? I don't think so. Is he going to him to have no water at all? We read in verse 8 that he's got a plan. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. Okay, fair enough. Just pop up to, where is it? Zarephath, just down the road, right? No, not really. If you look on a map, it's up in modern Lebanon, just south of modern Beirut. That's a fair hike from over in the Jordan River, sort of somewhere between the, you know, um, to that east bit of Jerusalem, just a little bit north of that. Probably about 200 k's he's got to walk in drought. No food, no water, stinking hot. What's he going to do? Well, what's more, he's told to leave Israel for Baal land. I've made that up, but it's a, it's a land of where Baal is leading, where everybody worships the god Baal. It's miles away from Israel, miles away from King Ahab. And it's where his wife came from, that that is Ahab's wife, Jezebel. It's right her hometown. It's where they worship Baal. And, And the Lord says, Elijah, I want you to go right there into the heart of enemy country, up a long, long way away. Bit of a problem, really, for Israel. Because the one guy who's got the power to fix this drought is leaving Israel. He's going north. He's heading up there. And so what does Elijah do? He says, we read in verse 10, that he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called her, bring me a bite of bread too. He's travelled a long way. I suspect that's not the first drink he's had in 200 kilometres of the desert. But he's thirsty. And he arrives at the destination and meets this widow, this widow whose husband's died, which means that she's in tough financial trouble. And she's at the village gate gathering for sticks. And he goes and asks her for food and drink. Somehow he just knows that she's the widow that the Lord has lined up. And so he asks for food. But will she provide that food? We read in verse 12, but she said, I swear by Yahweh, the Lord, your God, that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house 
And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. It's really tough. The widow says that she's got no food at all. Just a tiny little bit of flour and a tiny little bit of oil. And she knows that when she cooks up the last bit, it's gone. No more food for her or for her son. And notice what it is that she says, though, when she makes this oath. She says, I swear by the Lord your God. And I've mentioned these capital letters, L-O-R-D. That's an English translation of the word that, that they didn't actually pronounce in the original language of Hebrew. The best guess is Yahweh. It's the special name that God gave his people when he talked to Moses. It's the name that is in Elijah or Yah, Elijah. God is, my God is the Lord. She goes to him and says, I swear by the Lord your God. She's right there in the heart of Baal land and yet she speaks the Lord's name. But even though she knows the real ruler, she's still got a real problem. Her son and she are about to starve to death. And even though she, she wanted to obey the Lord, she had nothing to offer, absolute nothing. It's horrible enough to know that you're about to starve, but to know that the child in your care is about to starve as well, beyond devastating. And Elijah's there, and he sees that. He's the Lord's ambassador. He is, he's the Lord's man. What does he say to her? What are the words? Come on, get it for me. The Lord told you to. No, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Elijah says, don't be afraid. Can you think of another man of God who often said, do not fear, do not be afraid? It's Jesus. Time and time again, people are in the presence of Jesus and they go, and Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And Elijah said the very same words. You can see why there's such a parallel between their lives. I wonder what it is that you fear. When was the last time that you really needed someone to say to you, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Fear not. It might be that right now you are living in fear of something. Maybe your fear is because you live with uncertainty. Maybe your financial future is uncertain and troublesome. Maybe your health is scaring you. Maybe one of your relationships or one particular relationship is causing you fear. The only person who can genuinely say to you, do not be afraid, is the Lord. He doesn't promise to fix all our earthly problems, but he's able to calm our fears. But more importantly, he's able to offer certainty about eternity. If you have uncertainty about what happens next when you die, do not fear, do not be afraid, because Jesus gives us true hope for the future. He's the true Lord. 
And he gives us true hope for the future. Right now, this woman and her son are about to starve to death. And it just feels like Elijah's God is as powerless as Jezebel's God. And that's very, very important for us as we look at this specific moment in history. See, from the moment that Elijah brought the Lord's judgment upon King Ahab and he says, no rain, from that very moment, it was big time spiritual war. It was Yahweh the Lord versus Baal. God against God. All of that is happening right here. And this huge spiritual battle is being carried out in this, this little conversation between Elijah and this widow woman. Will Elijah's God, Yahweh, be any better than Ahab's God, Baal? We'll wait and see. Because straight after that, after he's told her not to be afraid, he says, go ahead and just do what you've said, but make a little bread for me first, and then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. He says, don't worry about it. Just make some bread, and I'd love some, thanks. It's a pretty big call. I mean, I reckon if I'd walk 500 miles and I turn up there and this woman says, I got just one bit of bread left and my son's about to die as well, I'd say, no worries, you just have the lot and I'll see if I can get you some more as well. But instead, he says, do not be afraid. Get the bread going and let's cook up some toast. Really? Why would he do that? See, what he's saying to her is, You need to trust that the Lord really will provide. Because he says in verse 14, this is what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel says. He says, the prophet says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time comes when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. That's a big test of faith, isn't it? It's like, really? Are you nuts? I've got this I've got this jar with flour and this bottle with oil. And you're saying every time I tip out it oil, it will magically refill? Are you crazy? Have you been out in the sun too long? Yes, you probably have. But are you crazy as well? Looks like it. Right at this moment, this woman has a real test of faith. Elijah says, do not be afraid. Do not... Be afraid about your son. Do not be afraid about yourself. Do not be afraid about your food, what you will eat or drink. The Lord will provide. She had no proof of that. She just knew that the Lord had said, this crazy guy called Elijah is going to turn up and he's going to want a bit of bread. He's coming. And she said, whoa, who are you? The Lord. Okay. That's all she knows. And he came. It's like, well, so far so good. He's, he's kept his promises, the Lord has. Will she keep the promises? Will, will she, she, she hold on to those promises? Will she obey those promises? See, it's a bit like that for us as well. All the time we need to trust in God's promises, even though we feel uncertainty. But the thing is, every promise that the Lord has made, he has kept 100%. Every promise that remains will come true. So what will this woman do with the promise that the Lord made through Elijah? She's going to say, no thanks. I'm just going to eat my bread. 
I know I've only got one bite at it, but that's what I'm... Did she? Verse 15. She did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. She trusted the word of the Lord through Elijah. And every day, the flour and the oil miraculously regenerated. And that's when she saw the fulfillment of God's promises. Great is your faithfulness. New every morning. Indeed it was. Every day, the Lord provided. But a bigger test was going to come for her And it was going to break her heart. Because we read in verse 17 that sometime later the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse and finally he died. This this son, her one and only son, has now died. And in the midst of all the ups and downs of the flour and the oil and the drought and everything else, it comes to this... How can this be the case? What, what, kind of, what kind of prophet are you, Elijah, that you'd, you'd sort of lead me on saying it's all going to be okay? I mean, I'm impressed about the flour and the oil. Nice trick. Don't know how you're doing it. The Lord's doing it. That's great. But, but it comes to this. So she says to her, in verse 18, she says to Elijah, Oh, man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? You can hear in her voice her anguish, her son, her dear son, her one and only son, dead. What kind of man of God are you anyway? Even though the Lord has been sustaining him and her and Elijah with this bread from heaven, it looks like The God of Elijah, who's Yahweh, he's no better really than the God of Baal. You know, I mean, he's got the flour and oil trick, but really, is that all it is? But friends, I mentioned before that extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And this was an extraordinary time in history. Heightened spiritual battle. God against God. And so we read in verse 19 that Elijah said, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms. Must have been a pretty small son, a young son. And Elijah carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying and he laid the body on the bed. Tragic. This this child is clearly not just sleeping. Elijah had the son in his arms. In the midst of all the ups and downs of the famine and the miraculous flower, was it all for nothing? But he takes the lifeless body of the widow's son and places the boy on his bed and he prays to the Lord. He prays to the Lord. Read what he says. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, Why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? Can all be summed up 
This whole prayer with one word, three letters. Why? Why, Lord? Why have you brought tragedy to this woman who who showed me such kindness? Why have you caused this child to die? Why? Even though it's just a little word, three letters, it's a sentiment that displays a lot about what we think of God and the universe. It's not a word that an atheist should use when they experience tragedy. Because if a person deep down truly believes that there's no God or spiritual world beyond what you can see and touch, then everything that happens is just a random event. If your car hits a wombat when you're full speed on the expressway and you run off the road and become a quadriplegic, there's no why for an atheist. It's just a random event. There's no why at all when you live in an atheistic, materialistic world. Asking why after tragedy makes no sense to an atheist, except the laws of physics, perhaps. But when this woman held this dead son of hers in her arms, she spoke as a woman who knew that there was a spiritual reality out there because she cried, why? Why? And Elijah, as he held the child in his arms, he cried out, Lord, why? Why the tragedy? And you wonder if Elijah's also thinking, why did you bring me up here to the middle of nowhere, representing you, my Lord is Yahweh, only to have this child die on my watch? Lord, it makes you look stupid. It makes you look powerless. It kind of almost defames you, Lord. You're just like Baal, but even worse. But having asked the question, Elijah does something really unusual. Really unusual. Verse 21, And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, Oh Lord, Yahweh, my God, please let this child's life return to him. Three times he places his life-filled body on the lifeless child. And he cries out to God for something that is impossible. A truly dead child. And he's lying there on top of him three times. And he cries out to the Lord. Please let this child's life return to him. It's a tragic sight because you know that it's not going to happen. It's never happened before. It's just sad. It's kind of like people who jump into a grave and say, Come back to life. Come back to. They must be alive. They must be alive. And you just want to hold them back and say, It's over. It's over. Verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's prayer and the life of the child returned and he revived. Really? (laughs) How does he do that? How does that happen? What seemed impossible was possible to God. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer. Why, O Lord, bring life, O Lord, 
and the Lord returned the life of the child. And so we read in verse 23 and 24 that Elijah brought him down from the upper room and he gave him to the mother. Look, your son is alive. And then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you're a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Could you believe that? The child's alive. What a miracle. But the best thing of all, even greater than the child coming to life, is that Yahweh won. He defeated death. And Baal just looks stupid. And through all of this, the woman, the widow woman, declared her trust in God's word. She trusted what the Lord said through Elijah because she'd seen miraculous proof. And we see the, the first battle between Yahweh, the true God, and Baal, the fake. And next week, friends, buckle up. We've got some extraordinary things as we look at the next two chapters. So please be sure to join us from chapters 18 and 19. But for now... We can just stop and marvel at this miraculous, remarkable event. God has done what is normally impossible. And the reason this is more remarkable is because the Bible is embarrassingly real and honest. God shows us in, in embarrassing colour the horror of human sin and the ugliness of rebellion. But we also see in that moment of clarity and colour the divine mercy and salvation right here in the midst of the horror we see life. And that's what we see in the healing of the widow's son. We see God's power, but we also see his mercy. Because when things seem impossible, the Lord did more than we could ever imagine or expect. Nearly a thousand years later, Jesus was walking along the road and he bumped into a funeral. See if you can spot the similarities here. It's a funeral for another widow woman whose only son, in fact, Luke uses the actual word only begotten son in the original language, which is interesting. He is there in a place called Nain. And we read in verse 12 of chapter 7 that a funeral procession was coming out as Jesus approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son. And a large crowd from the village was with her. And when the Lord Jesus saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. This is Jesus. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and he touched it. And the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Can you see the similarities there? There are so many similarities. This widow woman had the same problem as Elijah's widow woman. And Jesus himself did the same thing as Elijah, but no, he didn't. He did more. Because Elijah had to say, Lord, help. But to Jesus, 
He just said, get up. Because the difference is that Elijah was speaking the words of the Lord. But Jesus is Lord. And he touched that boy and he said, get up. And the one whose breath breathed life into creation is the one who brought life to this dead boy. Tell you what, if I was at a funeral and this crazy guy turned up and knocked on a coffin, I'd say, security? But then Jesus said, get up. And the boy came to life. This only begotten son came back to life. But then Jesus, the only begotten son of the father, died. But he also came back to life, didn't he, on that first Easter? And his resurrection is our hope. His resurrection is the certainty we need for our own resurrection. Should we trust in Jesus, as I hope you will. Friends, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Come to Jesus, if you haven't already. Put your trust in him. And in him, you are face to face with the Lord of the universe. The one who crushed death. And the one who is life. Let me pray.